Welcome to the Thrive Podcast from Syngenta, where the latest news, farming tips, and innovations come together to educate and inspire. During the 2018-2019 marketing year through April 2020, U.S. corn exports to Mexico accounted for nearly 40% of total U.S. shipments and hit record high values, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Economic Research Service. In addition, the United States supplied 96% of Mexico's total corn imports in 2018 through 2019. But on December 31, 2020, Mexico's President Andres Manuel López Obrador issued a decree, the equivalent of an American presidential executive order, that has the potential to massively shift agricultural trade exports between the U.S. and Mexico. Today, we're joined by Mary Kay Thatcher, Senior Manager for Federal Government and Industry Relations at Syngenta, to help us break down what this decree is, what it means, and the impact it can have. First of all, thank you so much for being with us today. Please give us an overview of U.S. ag exports to Mexico. So Mexico is always our number two or number three um, place for ag exports. Probably during the tit-for-tat trade war, it bumped up one as we had problems with China and they fell to from number one to number five. But Mexico is always very important. Obviously, Canada is its competitor too. But, you know, when they're so close and we don't have to pay transportation cost, it makes them by far the easiest export market for us. At the end of 2020, Mexico's president issued a decree. Can you summarize for us what that decree entails and what it aims to do? We've been hearing a lot about what President Obrador from Mexico wanted to do in terms of GM corn consumption and also the use of glyphosate in Mexico. But on December 31st, 2020, he indeed issued a decree that said, as of January 2024, we're not going to have any more use or importation of glyphosate into Mexico. And we're not gonna allow GM corn to come in if it's used for human consumption. Um, The question on human consumption is really an interesting one in that uh, we don't sell very much white corn to Mexico to be used in tortillas, but that would obviously be for human consumption. So it might affect that portion of the market. But what probably 98% of the exports that we send down there are number two yellow corn. So let's say the rollout does happen. And in January, 2024, What impact will that have on farmers? If they indeed move forward on not allowing glyphosate, well, chlorpyrifos or paraquat or atrazine or whatever will be next. This is is precedent setting uh, and it will be very problematic. Now, I have to tell you, I don't think they can totally not take our corn. By 2024, they don't produce enough there. Uh, Before one of the most recent um, political appointees in Mexico left his job, he gave a speech and talked about the fact that he had a list of 80 uh, other highly hazardous pesticides like neonics that were on a list to ban after this happened. To further your point about Mexico not producing enough to completely take our corn exports out of their market by 2024, since Mexico is a feed deficit country, U.S. corn imports help feed poultry and swine, providing protein sources that boost the food security of the Mexican population. Going beyond Mexico, do you foresee any other of the U.S. trade partners following suit? Well, this has been the European Union playbook for a long time on this precautionary principle where they really are not risk-based in how they how they look at it. And so, yeah, if Mexico gets by with it, then I think there will be other countries indeed pick it up. 
One of the other really interesting things about this is that not just in the Biden administration, because it was true under President Trump, too, uh, we, we got pretty clear signals. You know, we had USDA Secretary Purdue and USDA Undersecretary for Trade Ted McKinney and uh, the U.S. Trade Representative people working really hard on this with their counterparts in Mexico. So it's a big ask to get it all the way from the president, but it's something that absolutely has to happen because it is so precedent setting. Despite Obrador's decree, there haven't been any trade disruptions, but it's something that U.S. farmers and agribusiness leaders should keep an eye on. And in the meantime, the U.S. agriculture industry needs to continue educating members of Congress about this key issue. Coming up next, I'll be speaking with Iowa farmer and American Soybean Board member Wayne Fredericks about the impact and value of conservation tillage. Stewardship practices are a huge support for the environment, but they can also have additional benefits for farmers. I'm here with Wayne Fredericks, a past president of the Iowa Soybean Association, who serves on the American Soybean Association Board of Directors Conservation and Precision Ag Advocacy Team, who's also a farmer himself. Wayne, can you tell us about the profit and soil health advantages that you've gained through conservation tillage practices on your farm? You know, we have adopted, uh, you know, no-till and strip-till, and, uh, you know, that started a long time ago. It was kind of accidentally for me uh, back in the winter of 91, uh, we froze up early. We couldn't do our plowing. And up until that time, we typically plowed all of our corn stalks ahead of soybeans. And and it was that winter. And uh, when I sit in my office, I read an article about a, a young farmer in, in, in southwest Minnesota. It was even north of me. Uh, <laughs> that was no tilling soybeans with a John Deere drill. And I that intrigued me. It caught my attention. And uh, I happened to mention that article to my John Deere dealer in January that year. And he says, well, we're getting one of those in to try and uh, for our dealership. And if you would like to try it on your farm, you should be glad to. And and, and we did. And uh, it worked so good that uh, uh, the crops came up well. We, we drilled all the soybeans that spring. Uh, we was able to control the weeds. They looked good. Uh, come fall, they harvested well. And they yielded well. And it, it just became an instant conversion for me. I says, why the heck go back to plowing and all that work to raise soybeans when you can do it so easily with no-till? And so I became an instant adopter of, of no-till soybeans just overnight. 2001, we adopted strip-till. We saw no difference in yield between strip-till and conventional. With the strip-till adoption, then we opened up the doors to a lot of changes in soil health and soil quality, uh, water absorption, and it also opened the door for later adoption of cover crops. It became real apparent, you know, when we started into the early decade of the 2000s, how weather was changing. We were seeing more and more heavy rainfall events, devastating ones, you know, five, six, seven, eight inch rainfall events. Up until that time, we nearly didn't have much of that, but we, climate was was making a change in the frequency and the amount of rainfall. And it became very apparent, you know, that practices that we adopt on the landscape can have a dramatic effect, not only on water quality downstream, but also water quantity. If we could make our soils more absorbent, uh, more like a sponge, we could hold more water and we could help mitigate some of that downstream flooding. Mm -hmm. And so, that's just one example. And as we got into now the current dialogue about carbon and, and carbon sequestration, it's very apparent that 
what we do on our farm has a dramatic effect on that as well. You said that those practices opened the door for better water use in the soil, leading to better soil health. Can you just expand on that a little bit? Well, as you discontinue full-width tillage, and that's basically what we've done, we start to see changes in your soil. And most notable for us was organic matter. In fact, uh, over uh, about a 25-year period of time on a study that we were doing on, on three different farms that we'd had for a long, long time, we saw our organic matter increase about 2.5%. Roughly one-tenth of one percent per year. And as you talk with your soil scientist at University of Minnesota or Illinois or Iowa State, they would all tell you about the same thing, that that would be a doable increase in organic matter simply from discontinuing your full-width tillage. Mm. And so as we saw that change in organic matter from changing a tillage, then you start to see you know, other attributes come to, to the land, you know, that the absorbency of water increases, uh, the soil structure improves, your uh, water runoff diminishes, your, your drought carrying capacity increases. So a lot of those factors change when you, when you start to improve the organic matter of the soil. Increased water absorbency and drought carrying capacity are two factors that can make a really big impact on crop yield. More efficiency there is huge. Um, so how did you find out the benefit it was having that on your farm? That's huge. And, and we happened to get involved in a, doing a study with uh, uh, Dr. Jerry Hatfield and, and his team at USDA Agricultural Research Center in, in Ames, Iowa. Um, this occurred here about three years ago. They had a hypothesis that adoption of conservation practices would would improve productivity or something, but with, without studying real-life um, data from a farm that had been doing this for a long period of time, you know, they, they needed that data. And so I loaded it all up on a flash drive, and I sent it down to Jerry and his team. And, uh, and then uh, about a month later, I loaded all the weather data because we had that as well, and I sent that to him. And so they done a long-term analysis, you know, looking at 16 years worth of data. And they come up with, you know, two basic obvious conclusions that they saw. Number one was they saw an reduced variability across our fields. In other words, those poor spots or there's poor soils in the field had improved dramatically in their productivity compared to, you know, the better soils, you know. And which says that, you've improved your profitability because those you don't have those real low-end yields that are dragging you down. And the second part that was really obvious was the water use efficiency had went up dramatically. We were getting a lot more bushels per inch of rainfall at the end than we were at the beginning. And that just tells you as you improved your soil health, you improved the organic matter, you were better able to utilize what rainfall you got. And that, that's just huge. I'm curious, do you know about how long it took for them to start seeing an improvement? Like, was it after one season that you started the strip tillage, no tillage practices, or did it take a couple of years? What I noticed first, we go back to the no-till soybeans. My immediate notice there was in the profitability from reduced equipment costs, reduced labor. 
that, you know, that was an obvious thing that I noticed. Uh, we did notice improved harvestability because we was no longer doing that deep plowing. Wow, that's incredible. There's been both an operational and field level impact of adopting these changes. I mean, economically, you just can't beat no-till strip-till versus conventional when you start talking about equipment costs, labor costs. I mean, it's not even close. And it surprises me that more farmers don't make that adoption because we're talking about maintaining yields equivalent to those operations. It's not like we had to give up yields to do it. Uh, Cover crops brings a whole new picture to it. Again, uh, as we're learning to adopt cover crops and and learn more about the biology that's going on under there and, and about what they do for your fertility, and so forth. It's, 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 it's a constant study and practice year after year. In a Syngenta Thrive Magazine article, you mentioned the 2080 rule. Can you explain that to me? That rule, I'll give credit to Dr. Jerry Hatfield, who I mentioned earlier, um, who's the Director of Agriculture uh, Research Service, USDA in Ames, Iowa. He often you know, gives this message that we lose 20% of our yield 80% of the time because of the lack of available moisture. And that's basically focused on that July, August time frame when when our corn is trying to really build bushels or soybeans or potting and building bushels. And that's often when we kind of see those warm dry spells settle in and we just just don't have that inch of water that you would love to have at that particular moment. And so under these systems of conservation that we have here that we talked about earlier about improving organic matter and so forth and improving the water use efficiency, that leads to that that decision, you know, is if we can improve our water use efficiency, we can get over that 20% yield loss that's 80% of the time because we built more resiliency into our soils and our systems. Wow, 20% of yield, that's a significant amount. Yeah, that's 240 bushel corn versus 200 or 60 bushel beans versus 50. It's significant. It's I think it's kind of interesting that we continue to see even in these years of uh, uh, some of these dry spells, especially here in Iowa recently, um, we're still continually see yields go up. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of that is recognition of this and adoption of practices. We're not losing ground. We're gaining ground on farmers adopting, you know, more soil health type practices. So I think that's starting to be reflective. And of course, you know, we have great technology out there and there's the adoption of that. That's that's always beneficial as well. Yeah, that's such a good point. So to close out the podcast, is there anything that you want to leave with our listeners? Well, I think the message that I I want to leave with farmers, and we've talked about it, is that, you know, what you do on your land doesn't just stay there. It has an implication, you know, beyond the fence. And uh, whether it be climate, whether it be water quality or quantity, uh, whether it be nutrient loss, issues of that sort, it just, uh, it it gets beyond the fence one way, shape, or form. And, And so... Anything we can do on our farms to to mitigate that, anything we can do on our farms to to keep nutrients at home, uh, carbon at home, those are all huge. And uh, if you haven't done anything yet, I encourage you to 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 find a a local farmer who has adopted some of these practices, visit with them, learn, try to understand what might work in your region. Find somebody local 
that is is adopting some conservation practices, go out and try it. You know, try it on 40 acres. And if you got to go out in the back 40, that's fine. But at least go out and try something. I think that uh, you'd be surprised that uh, with the tools and technology and uh, the resources we have today, we can make a major change in the conservation that's going on in this country and have a huge, huge benefit to to society and to to our bottom line as well. This doesn't have to be something that costs us. This is something that should be able to improve our profitability, productivity, and livelihoods. Very well said. Thank you so much for your insight and testimony of your own experience that you shared today. For more stories and educational topics across the ag industry, visit syngentaus.com thrive. Now to talk about one of the largest ag experiences of the year happening later this month, and his Commodity Classic, I'm joined by Thrive TV's Adam Baxt. Hello again, Katie. So tell me, what can we expect from Commodity Classic this year? Well, they're welcoming the ag industry back together this year in New Orleans to showcase solutions, information, and insight for farmers. And of course, they're starting off right with the theme of the welcome reception as the streets of New Orleans, you know, I'm a little jealous because I do love some jazz music. Same. I went to New Orleans for a national choir competition in high school, laugh away. Um, it was so much fun. And we got to sit down and talk with like some jazz musicians there and I absolutely loved it. That's such a fun theme for this year. I know. And of course, there's so many different learning sessions to attend that can help farmers make better decisions on their operations. Oh, of course. Um, well, for one, Syngenta will be offering a course called the Economics of Agronomics. And it's all about the steps farmers can take to make sure they're choosing the right crop inputs that will bring them the greatest returns. Um, it's a panel discussion with economic and agronomic experts providing information on not only how to get the best return on investment, but also about some new advancements in data and technology. Which is key because data is crucial to making those decisions on the farm. And I love a good panel discussion, just having great minds come together to try and share their expertise. Absolutely. And I think we'll have some new product introductions and sneak peeks, am I right? Yeah, Syngenta representatives will be there to introduce both the Tendovo soybean herbicide and are giving a preview of the Cruiser Max Apex seed treatment. Lots to learn and attendees will definitely have some fun as well. Yeah, it's going to be a good time for sure. Well, thank you so much, Adam, and I will see you and all of our listeners next month for another episode of the Thrive Podcast from Syngenta. Thank you for listening to the Thrive Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to receive the latest updates in your favorite podcast listening platform. Always read and follow label instructions.